When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. As we've alluded to on our other shows, this offseason, our Crack Rackets team attempted to speak with every Power 5 men's and women's head coach employed throughout the college tennis world. We asked each of them about their team's respective 2021 seasons and what we should expect from them here in 2022. Of course, we also offered them a platform to share their thoughts on some of the big picture topics in college tennis. It is a fantastic series that our team is ecstatic to finally start sharing with the broader college tennis community over the next six weeks. Fans can expect no fewer than 10 episodes a week to be posted on this feed. A huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support with this series. Remember, go to tennis-point.com right now. Use that promo code CR15 to express your thanks. With all of that said, we're ready to get to today's episode. So Westoff, hit those credits. Let's start today's show. Joining us on the podcast for the first time today, a man, I won't lie, I've been chasing after to get as a guest on this show. Of course, you may know him best as a man inside Tennis Magazine called the Junior Player of the 20th Century. You may also know him as one of the most accomplished head coaches in college tennis history. I know him as the current head coach of the UCLA men's tennis team. Welcome to the show, Billy Martin. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm great, Alex, and uh, so glad to be joining you and uh, talking about something I love so much, uh, college tennis. Yeah, no, it is a pleasure to have you, and obviously, I want to get into all things UCLA, but come on, 20th century junior player of the century, I mean, on the mantles, like, that's a nice one to have. Well, yes, it is, but uh, it seems like it was lifetimes ago, uh, you know, it just... uh, and, you know, my players always joke about it because they only see me with pictures of me using a wood racket. And, you know, it just uh, the games evolved so much since my days. And I, I, I take, you know, I look at some photos sometimes or videos of, you know, the way we played and the game has just, you know, gotten so much bigger, stronger, faster paced. It's, it's incredible how tennis has evolved since my playing days. Mm-hmm. And the the reason I bring that up is I want to ask, and obviously you're a former NCAA champion team-wise, singles-wise. You accomplished so much as a professional player as well. And yet, something about college tennis you keep gravitating towards. I'm curious, what is it about the college game in particular that you fall in love with throughout your career? Well, I, I think it's as I've matured just as a, a man myself, being able to hopefully help young men. Uh, you know, not only become better tennis players, but grow as 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 a person. Uh, you know, there's so many things that are involved on a day to day basis when 
uh, a young man's on a college campus from their studies to personal traumas that come up, uh, girlfriend breakups, uh, family health problems. It's just, you know, I, I think as coaches, we could write a book on things that weren't necessarily on the uh, uh, agenda that we thought was going to be part of being a college coach, but things that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, to see these kids come through our programs in four or five years, leave, hopefully go out to have a successful pro career, but if not, you know, become a, a, a family man and have a great career, that's ended up being as rewarding for me as, as maybe all the matches we've won and other successes I've had in tennis. I think maybe the best part of your resume in terms of what you do now, the fact that you got an MBA, because what I've realized is balancing the four and a half scholarships is everything. Like you don't realize you have to be a mathematician before you become a head coach. And little did you know that MBA in the back, back pocket, you're, you know, I've seen the calculus models for how you do the scholarships coach. It's impressive. But, um, <laughs> you know, with, with all of that said, again, I'm coming in hot, spicy here. I, this is a question I've wanted to ask whenever we were going to get you on the show, and it's not about the 2021 UCLA team. It's about the 2014 team, which, in my opinion, is the best team in college tennis history never to win an NCAA title. And you look at the roster you guys had, of course, nowadays, Marcos Giron, Mackie McDonald, top 100 players. They weren't even playing number one singles. You had Clay Thompson, who might be the most entertaining player of the past decade, and Carew and Puget, a young Gage Brimer. I again, I told you you might swear at me. This might be the question where you do it, Coach. But is that your best team to not win a title? Yeah, quite possibly. I I, yeah. I think maybe the you know one of my youngest teams, uh, the '96 team with Gimelstab and Sergin Muscatarovich, uh, Eric Tano. We were you know 27 and 0 going into the finals against Stanford beaten them three times already, um, uh, won the doubles point, uh, and just felt like everything was just, you know, and then it, we, you know, we got some tightness in our bones, I guess. Not, I mean, not that Stanford wasn't a great team, and but, you know, odds are we're going to probably win that match, and we did not win that match. I thought that was, you know, right up there with probably that 2014 team to, to, to not win uh, was, you know, disappointing, but that's what sports is all about. And, and, you know, playing your best tennis at, at those really key junctures uh, in the season is uh, what wins championships. Mm -hmm. No, and I think it's a testament to the coaching job you guys did. How good was Clay that fall and throughout that spring? I feel like that run from Clay, to, again, serving Volier at that era, at that time, and to have like Marcos, Mackey, Gage, again, not to harp on this team, but I swear to God, if you play NCAA 10 times, you guys win it seven. Well, uh, I w would hope we'd get at least one of them. But, yeah, Clay, that was a phenomenal year. He had uh, uh, come off a bad year. He had had some back troubles the year before. I think I had him five in the lineup uh, when we lost to um, Virginia in the finals in 2013. But, you know, it didn't start out real well for him. He went to, the, to Tulsa to play the All-Americans, lost first round. We literally had to drag him out of the hotel to play the backdraw, he was absolutely, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I said, you get in this car and you're playing this. You need these matches. Well, sure enough, he goes on and wins the backdraw, gets a wild card into the, you know, 
finals of this and that, or, you know, I mean, the other big tournaments. And just from there, he blossomed. He, you know, got confidence. And I think the thing I always think about that was so amazing, uh, his racket tension throughout the year. He started at like 45, which is generally pretty loose. Anyhow, by the end of the year, he was, I think, 34 pounds. I mean, it was like a, a badminton racket. None of us could believe it. But, you know, he would huge serve, come in. You know, he always liked to sort of drop volley, you know, you know, not you know, great solid deep volleys. And it just worked for him. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was pretty fun to watch. No, I can only imagine what that ride was like, and obviously coming off of 2013, which ended the way it did, and I'm not going to ask you about that yet, because, you know, I don't want you to get completely mad at me, but we may get back <laughs> to that later, uh, but, you know, again, talking about the success, obviously, you, your teams have had throughout the course of your career, and so much success throughout your time at UCLA, obviously, again, NCAA champions from a team perspective, from an individual perspective in both singles and doubles. With all that said, and I say this lovingly, you look at last year, how challenging was that season, not only just starting with COVID, but again, with Keegan going through what he goes through and, you know, the uncertainty, it just felt like everyone at some point for that roster on your roster was injured. How, how difficult was the 2021 season? You know, I think for all of us, very difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. We didn't know what was going to hit us next. Uh, you know, especially early in the year, we had 10 guys get COVID. We had guys that, you know, had to quarantine for 10 days twice uh, for just close exposure and never got it. So, I mean, it was like such paranoia uh, with the COVID situation to sort of start out the season. And then they, they shut us down for about two and a half weeks. Um, and then finally to get going was fun. But, you know, just such a different year where troopsing through airports with you know k95 mask and face shields and all that i mean it, it was it was you know not how i had ever pictured uh, we'd be traveling uh you know to, to certain events but in, in a lot of ways it was good for us all to get out i think the you know five six months of us all being down you know got us to appreciate how much we enjoy playing tennis coaching tennis being at school so that part, I think, brought us all a little bit closer together. And I still thought, you know, by the uh, midseason, we were coming along pretty good, um, improving weekly, in my opinion. I, I still thought we were going to be a contender, quite honestly. But, of course, with Keegan having his uh, accident, it just absolutely took the, the wind out of our sails. And, quite honestly, emotionally, I was uh, as upset as I think I've been in, in my personal life about a young man that was, you know, close to, you know, maybe having a life death situation. Mm-hmm. No, and I am so fascinating to hear because again, you talk about that adversity your team went through. We'll talk about the bond that was formed between this group. And obviously, as you look towards 2022, yes, you know, you guys lose Keegan, you guys lose Govind, and uh, obviously Ben Goldberg going to be able to stick around uh, a little bit as your volunteer assistant. I know Connor Hans gone as well, but. It does feel like a lot of guys in that group, Connor Rapp, I don't want to forget any of the seniors, um, you know, it just feels like the bond that must have been shared between that team to have the ups and the downs. Have you felt that coming into this season, that there is a little edge, a little hunger to this group? Well, I absolutely believe that's 100% true. I, I don't think any of us like the, 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 the way the year ended. Uh, you know, we have always tried to be very competitive and, uh, you know, have a lot of pride in our program and how hard we work. But as I tell every team when they come in every year, you can't rely on what 
you know, other great, you know, teams in our school program have done before, we're going to have to prove it ourselves. So I think everybody's, you know, you know, knowing that that challenge is among, uh, among us and something that we want to do. So uh, I think we've got some great young talents uh, in our program. Is this really going to be a, one of our best years? Probably not. And I've been honest with the guys, although I've been surprised sometimes when I say that, but, you know, we can build from this, get better. I, I truly feel the future looks, you know, really good for us. Um, and, uh, you know, give us another year or two. I think we'll be right there fighting for a national championship. Mm-hmm. No, this group feels really feisty. And obviously, you know, you look at the top of the lineup, you lose Keegan, you lose Govan, and in comes a guy in Drew Baird who, yes, is technically a junior, but probably the least experienced junior in NCAA history, hasn't had a full season yet to really work into his plays and, you know, again, get that full development that you search for when you come to college. That said, you know, you look for Drew last year, nine and seven overall in dual matches. You look for him here uh, in the fall, two and one overall in, in the ITA level, but I know he's been playing pro events as well. Is he ready to make that jump to the top of the lineup? I'm curious the growth you've seen from him in, you know, again, I, I guess it, it is right. The least experienced junior class ever. I would, you know, definitely say that's probably true but again i think drew does have a lot of experience uh you know whether it's you know playing like he played a lot of matches this summer uh i think he had 40 some matches this summer so he was really eager to play um you know he's certainly seen enough to know what it's going to be all about so uh i don't think that's a problem you know he's worked harder physically this year than he ever has in the gym he had a great fall which we didn't get to have last year uh, with nobody, you know, not being able to even practice or be in the gym. So I, I'm looking for him to be absolutely a leader for us. Um, but again, we've got some, you know, older guys and Roscoe Bellamy, Matthew Salaki and Eric Hahn, who, you know, uh, have been in our lineup and our seniors know what it's all about. Um, and, and then we've got a, you know, Patrick Zara, who's a senior who's, you know, been right there with us for, you know, all three years. So, We've got some, you know, senior experience, um, but again, I think some of our young talent is is exciting for me to see, and it's going to be a really good mixture of, you know, some some young and old guys on our team, and and I always love to see that just because to see who's going to really rise to the occasion. Uh, I'm always uh, pleasantly surprised, and sometimes, you know, maybe disappointed. Some guys aren't aren't ready to to take that challenge. Mm-hmm. No, and you talk about, again, that combination of talent, and it is a very interesting group. It feels like there are a lot of seniors, a lot of freshmen, and not too much in between. And yet, again, looking at the roster, the thing that jumps out to me is the depth. Like, it does feel like you've got nine guys, ten guys who could all slot in at some point in the lineup and feel comfortable. Also, on the same point, on that double side, I noticed, you know, you played ten doubles teams together this fall and obviously that's a larger number clearly you're looking for pairs you know no settling yet on any two people specifically what what has the goal uh, you know again given the unknown surrounding this UCLA team what are you Rickus Ben you know trying what did you guys try to accomplish this fall was the focus continuity rhythm system you know what were the what were the goals well I think no different than normal just you know we really love to try to see the doubles pairings and who's got chemistry and I go into it thinking this is going to be a great team and you know after two tournaments you know you see the chemistry is just not there it's not a gel 
Uh, so, those, you know, that's always interesting and something, again, we didn't ha get to, to have last year, which I think really hurt us. You know, we also have Bryce Pereira, who's been always one of our best doubles players, you know, who took the fall off, really only has about two classes to graduate. We'll take a couple classes in the winter quarter, graduate, but still be able to play for us. So he'll really help us for sure in doubles um, also. But, uh, you know, yes, especially with young freshmen coming in, you, you want to see you know, where they're at uh, with the doubles, you know, which court do they really play on? That's always a challenge. You know, I've always found, you know, seven out of seven or eight out of 10 guys always like playing the ad court. Uh, it, it's tough to find deuce court players that really feel comfortable and, and that play it well. Cause that to me, that's the, you know, especially as a righty sort of the tougher court to play with that reverse backhand with so many two handers. So we've been able to, you know, certainly you spend a lot of time with that, working on the doubles. You know, that's a tough sell for a lot of these kids coming into college tennis. Uh, you know, they, you know, poo-poo the doubles a little bit. And, oh, I don't want to play a doubles player coach when I leave. And, you know, I always have preached, you know, working on their double skills will help their single skills along the way. And I think it's, you know, a guy like Govin was probably as staunch of not wanting to work on doubles. But I think he, you know, after about a year and a half, two years, he was admitting, you know, it's really helped my singles. It's allowed me to be able to become a much better volleyer when I've had to do that against certain opponents and singles. So, you know, that's that's a little bit of a tough sell sometimes very beginning in college, at least for me and my teams in the past. But um, I, I enjoy it and it gives the kids a little bit more well-rounded game, I think, especially for the singles. So. But, you know, again, uh, otherwise, we've been just trying to really get in good physical shape. I mean, the, the, the game of tennis has become so physical, I think. Um, you know, you, you can't go out there and bluff physicality, especially once you get into a third set. I mean, your, your serve miles per hour or 10, 15, you know, less the third set uh, compared to the first couple sets you know you, that's going to be tough uh, your speed uh you know are you really able to you know be patient and play out the long points to to set yourself up for the best ball instead of just trying to you know end the point too quickly so you know that that was another thing i really wanted to focus on this fall mm -hmm. and you've talked about the way the game has changed you know i growing up our coaches would always stress serve and volley serve and volley first serve second serve singles double you know or in doubles excuse me it doesn't matter you should be serving and volleying has the role of the serve and volley changed in in, in you know college doubles i'm curious how much emphasis you put on that with your guys well i i think it's a necessity to be able to be able to do it and feel comfortable <laughs> with it there are certainly guys and you usually see them in the third spot uh you know, that are, are staying back on second serves, mixing it up uh, and on first serve, just because they're not comfortable serving and volleying and, you know, aren't really strong up there. But, you know, th th usually, uh, not you know, I'd say 80% of the time, if you've got a really good doubles team that can close and is putting pressure on you, it's really hard to stay back and, and, and play, you know, especially on your serve. Um, you know, you can somewhat get away with it, maybe more so in these six game pro sets, in my opinion, you know, whereas in, in a two out of three set match, it's really hard to, uh, uh, to, to get away with it. But, you know, it's so fast and furious, this doubles scenario for us. I mean, you know, we've got some teams we play against where both guys are back. It's hard to get them into the net, but yet they're, they're, you know, so doggone strong up the return and their ground strokes, uh, 
you know, it, it, it sometimes works. So it, it, it you know, really depends a, a lot on who you're playing, what position and all that. But I think I strive to try to get everybody to at least be comfortable enough to be able to mix it up on either first or second serve. Mm-hmm. No, and again, the results are in look at the results and it speaks to the job you guys have done in implementing that system. And, you know, you've talked about the development you'd like to see from your guys in the fall. And something I've been exploring with all these power five coaches is just what should the role of the college tennis fall be? And I'm curious your philosophy, because, you know, if the role of the fall is to prepare for the spring, why aren't we just playing hidden duel matches everywhere? Why, you know, if you really want to see your guys in the team format, aren't, isn't the hidden duel the best way to prepare for those matches in the spring at the same time right now? Obviously, we've got various individual events that are, that take place and, you know, it allows guys to go play pro circuit events. It doesn't pigeonhole you in a roster spot. I'm curious what you view the role as for your team and what you, tra- you know, is it a developmental period? What, what do you use the fall for? Well, I think it varies, you know, especially for your upperclassmen compared to your freshmen. Uh, My freshmen, I feel it's so important for me to have them there and get a feel for their game and start, you know, maybe putting some ideas into their mind about what I think we really need to improve upon uh, to get them to the next level. I mean, you know, you don't want to throw too many things at them to change. Uh, You know, you want to, you know, maybe the top two and then when they conquer those move on to something else. Uh, whereas with my older guys, I mean, especially your top players, I mean, a lot of those guys are on the brink, whether to come back or not. I mean, you, you have to bend in my opinion and say, yeah, that's the time to play some pro tournaments, you know, keep your, your ranking up your UTR or whatever it is, get some ATP points. So I don't think you can be rigid or at least I haven't been able to have that luxury of being rigid with everybody, uh, you know, as far as what they have to do and what, what they can't do. And, you know, it's just uh, you, you've got to be a little bit individualistic, I think, with, with your players. But uh, freshmen, you know, I think it's a good idea for them to get out there and play some of these individual tournaments and at the college level. I mean, a lot of times they're, tank, they're taking a spanking, and, and that's good. I mean, you know, freshman, you know, mentality is tough sometimes in that they're playing guys you know, four or five years older that they might have looked up to in the past. And now I'm asking them to, you know, forget that. You got to go out with the mentality. You, you've got to, you know, put a whooping on this guy. We need you. Um, and that's not easy. Um, so some of those, uh, I think, fall tournaments help them. Even if they take a loss or two, you know, you know, we can, you know, somewhat help convince them, hey, you're not that far away from beating this guy. You know, it's more mental sometimes than anything. So, uh, you know, I, I guess that's my answer. I hope I answered, uh, you know, all all that you asked. But, uh, you know, it, it's really, you know, got to be flexible, I think, nowadays. Mm-hmm. No, you did, I'm Barbara Walters of the tennis podcasting industry, Coach. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I throw a lot of different parts into my questions. But, uh, you know, with all of that said, and I know this is an NCAA edict, but I am curious, and hopefully if enough coaches say it, the NCAA will take notice of it, does the eight-hour rule, the 25 competitive dates, do those numbers reflect, you've talked about the increased physicality, the demands of modern tennis? How frequently in this portion of the season are guys coming to you and saying, hey, Billy, can I work with you on the court for an hour? And you have to say, well, you've already hit your four hours, so no, I can't. Yeah, it's really, really frustrating. Uh, you know, But again, then you've got, you've got some of your lower guys that really— 
don't have the you know the dream to go play pro tennis after college that you know are working their fanny off a lot harder and they really would do it on their own just for those 20 hours a week and you know the eight you know the four hours on the eight hour weeks um whereas the guys that are really driven you know it, it's frustrating i mean to to not be able to to practice with them because yes they 100 percent need more tennis than what we're able to give them you know we've got to try to get outside you know people they can play with besides the team maybe that are in town for us in la um you know among themselves whatever it might be but uh i i i, I would like to have more matches quite honestly i think 25 uh matches is you know a little slim uh you know, to me, I think we could easily go up to 28 or 30 matches, especially with, you know, double headers or something. So uh, I would be a, a strong proponent in trying to, you know, lobby to, you know, up that a little bit. Uh, I know we want to be concerned that the kids aren't, you know, overwhelmed, but I, I think, you know, at least 50 or 60% of my players are, are more upset that we aren't doing it more and can't do more. And with that in mind, I'm curious in terms of the scheduling for you guys this year. I know uh, for the kickoff weekend, you guys are headed down to College Station and A&M, Arizona, Texas Tech yourselves. That's just as easy to go 2-0 and for every team as it is to go 0-2. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm curious for you guys to be able to schedule a full season. I know TCU's coming to town for you guys this year, and I know you guys are going to Pepperdine. Uh, again, the kickoff weekend at Texas A&M. But, you know... Should the 500 rule be waived as well? Is that something you, I, it's not something you guys usually think about at UCLA when you're scheduling, but they waived that last year. Is that something you'd like to see go away permanently? Yeah, I do. I think we, you know, there's been years where I've worried about it, quite honestly, you know, going into the year. I mean, if I know it's not, you know, maybe not one of our stronger teams, you, you can't because you've seen some good teams not get in, uh, you know, so you have a tendency to try to, you know, schedule a few easier matches so you can say, okay, at least I got hopefully those there, you know, we got to pull out at least, you know, this many matches. And, and so if if you were asking me, yes, I, I would like that to, to go away just because I, I, I think, um, you know, it, it, it actually hurts some teams being able to schedule the stronger matches. And, and I would love to play those stronger matches and it really helps our ranking a lot more than scheduling, somebody that you think you're probably for sure going to get a win against. Mm -hmm. No, that's why I'm curious what the draft strategy was. Obviously you guys were number 25. You had one of the earlier picks. There were open regions available, but you chose college station. That's a, that's a bold choice coach. Well, I think there's definitely some strategy, or at least I think there's sure. strategy. I, <laughs> you know, you know, last year we chose just to go to SC. I knew that would be a tough region, you know, mainly because of SC um, being a great team and playing at their place. Uh, but we didn't want, nobody wanted to travel uh, last year, uh, including myself. But, you know, I, I think, you know, college uh, or Texas A&M, I think is, you know, at least at the time I thought was going to be a little down. They lost a lot of guys like we did. Um, you know, so you want to look at that. Um, you know, you don't know who else is going to go a certain, you know, when they're, when they're drafting and all. Uh, but, you know, I think it was challenging. I, I've been to College Station, you know, numerous times for the NCAAs, had pretty good success. I, I like the facility. You know, I love the coaches at, at A&M. So I, it wasn't that difficult a decision to make. And, 
you know, thought we'd, we'd maybe have a, a, a good chance to survive. Yeah, no, certainly. And again, looking at the roster for you guys, we've talked about the returners, but, you know, you bring in, according to Tennis Recruiting, the number three recruiting class in the nation, highlighted by Blue Chips, Spencer Johnson, Carl Lee, you bring in Alexander Hogmartens and Giacomo Ravelli as well. How have uh, the freshmen acclimated themselves to campus? How are the guys looking? Well, very good. Uh, I must say that we, we, we do not have Spencer Johnson, who had signed, but uh, decided to do his Mormon mission, so he, he will be, you know, kind of uh, taking a two-year hiatus before joining us. But um, it, the other three are doing a great job. Uh, really, really enjoyed having them all. Um, you know, my first young man from Belgium uh, ever. Uh, certainly have had a few British kids. Uh, you know, although Giacomo Ravelli certainly sounds Italian, I always have to remind myself. He, He's British, but he's, as soon as he starts talking, you're, you you know it's true. Um, but both those guys are well-established players. I think they're going to help us uh, immensely. You know, we were really fortunate to get Giacomo. He, he, I always tell people this. Uh, he got into school on his own, which really just doesn't happen at, hardly at all uh, for us at UCLA. I mean, he, he just had to have been such an incredible student. But uh, got in on his own, wrote me sort of late in the summer that he'd maybe like to come. So it, it, it all happened pretty fast. And, you know, it, you know I thank the tennis gods because, uh, you know, when we find out Keegan and, and Govan are both not coming back, uh, it, it helped us quite a bit. And then Carl Lee from Sacramento, California, who I've seen play a lot throughout the last year, year and a half, has really stepped up and I think done a good job. So uh, excited to have those three guys. I know they're going to be very very important for us not only this year but as uh, the years come come along mm -hmm. and with that in mind i do want to talk about some big picture things because i know you know again looking at the roster this year you bring in a bunch of different freshmen and obviously you know it worked out for you here for this offseason but i'm curious right now and i know it's heightened given that we have five graduating classes from high school currently in college tennis because of the extra year extended due to COVID. But I'm curious how you balance recruiting for the long term, bringing in, you know, the guys you're going to have three, four years with versus knowing, hey, if I look at the transfer portal right now, I can find a five, I can find a six. How do you balance those two things in constructing your roster? Well, you know, it's, it, I guess you, I'd be honest in saying it's been a little bit of a sore spot for me because sure. it's really changed sort of the spectrum of college tennis with the, you know, the graduate students coming. I, yeah, I guess we're at such a disadvantage as I'm sure a lot of other schools and that we just can't get these kids into graduate school. Like I see like so many other schools being able to do. I mean, you know, we have no real pull. They've got to have the same GMAT. GRE scores as all the other incoming kids. They have to have the high GPA coming out. You know, it just, there's no mercy. Um, and by the time most of these kids have decided that's what they want to do, it, you know, already, you know, the, the class has been chosen uh, at UCLA. So, you know, I think, you know, I'm looking forward to quite honestly, you know, another year of, of this and then it calming down and kind of getting back to, what I would call real recruiting and sort of the, the status quo that I think we've had for all these years uh, before COVID. But, um, you know, it's, it's caused a lot of more parity, I think, in, in college tennis. Other 
great schools. You know, kids can go to graduate school, get it paid for, you know, maybe a two for one year type thing. But um, it's it, it really changed the, the horizon a lot um, and will continue to do so, I think, until this four year time period is over. And I'm curious there. So you do, do you think because, again, I guess I'll editorialize a bit here. I do think the process of transferring has been destigmatized. And I do think that's a good thing, meaning, you know, it's no longer going to say, well, that coach is horrible, that player is horrible, that program sucks. Sometimes now it's just we acknowledge the fit wasn't right. That said, you sort of mentioned it there. Do you think this slow? I mean, obviously, there are just more kids available, but do you think the phenomenon of transferring slows down after these extra year of COVID eligibility goes away? Oh, I, I would think so for sure. I mean, they certainly have opened up, you know, the fact that, you know, you can transfer now and in between conference, you know, within conference a lot more on, you know, at least Pac-12 just opened that up. And, and I think it is fair for a young man to be able to, you know, if he goes for a year and just realizes he's never going to have a chance to play or, you know, doesn't like the coach, whatever it might be, should have the, the, the chance to, uh, to transfer. I, I'm not saying I'm against that at all. I'm just, you know, the, the fact that, you know, you've got guys choosing not to play their fourth year somewhere, you know, sit out a year so they can go somewhere and get two years of graduate school in, or, you know, it, it, it really has, you know, changed the dynamics a lot. Um, and, you know, and, and then you've got some schools that we, we were hearing <laughs> that, you know, for, for some reason at the graduate school level, they can get aid, you know, that doesn't go on to the, four and a half and you know i'm just scratching my head and seeing oh my god how is that possible i mean you know private public schools are different than private and that you know scholarship academic scholarships have to be you know open to anybody but i know um private schools have a little different um say but you know i i think it I, again i'm looking for it to kind of get back to to normal after these uh, four years and, you know, certainly kids should have the right to transfer. I'm not saying that. Yeah, no, I'm all this is, is to say that Billy Martin MBA again, coming in <laughs> more and more handy uh, with every passing week. All right. Uh, you know, again, I am curious, last recruiting question for you. Uh, and, you know, I know you have had, uh, you brought in plenty of international guys throughout the course of the year, and I think you guys, the success you've had has proven international recruiting is essential. I'm curious, do you think NIL, name, image, likeness for the listeners that don't know, do you think that impacts recruiting and tennis moving forward? Well, I think it certainly can. Um, sure. You know, I would say, you know, around our sport here at UCLA, probably not. But, you know, the intention is not to use it as a recruiting tool uh, necessarily, but, you know, I think our, I think my fear and a lot of other people's fears is, you know, that it can be, it's not supposed to be, but it, it can be, I think it has been already and, and will continue to be. So how that plays out, you know, we'll see, but uh, you know, that that's scary for us to think that we're, you know, potentially could be in a, a, a bidding war between finding, you know, sponsors that can guarantee, you know, somebody this and that if they decide to come to play at their program. And if I, you know, were a betting man, I would say it's probably going to happen. Mm -hmm. No, it, it is going to be fascinating to see. And 
you know, again, it, yeah, it gone our. It used to be the challenger wild card, the futures wild card. That was the carrot that the coach could offer. Now it's like, no, here's twenty thousand dollars. I mean, that's just an example. But yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to monitor moving forward. With all of that said, I do want to talk about uh, some other things as well, and I do want to start with a guy who's nearing the top one hundred of the ATP singles rankings in Max Cressy and. Look, I've talked to people who were on those early teams with Cressy, and it is not hyperbole to say he was like the 10th, 11th guy on the roster. Now he's like 10, 11 spots away from the top 100 coach. What does that say about the growth of Max? And I'm curious what you've, again, what you've thought of his success. Well, it really is incredible, but I, I think it's a testament of what an incredible work ethic he has and even had uh, when I first kind of got to know him when he was up at Wild Tennis Academy up in Ojai, um, you know, where he came from France, uh, watching him play some junior tournaments. He did some things that were incredibly fascinating. And, you know, I think, you know, I can safely say probably the worst forehand I've ever, you know, had it on my team uh, coming in. But, you know, the guy worked incredibly hard every year. It got better. The things he did well got better, incredibly well-conditioned. I mean, there was no stone unturned for him. I mean, diet, sleep, meditation, stretching. I mean, he really was a, a pro even when he was at UCLA. And I think just the fact that he wasn't playing, you know, bothered him. But it didn't stop him from working hard uh, and wanting to make sure that, you know, whether it was junior or senior year, he was going to be our top guy. Um, and he proved that. And one thing I think that's fascinating with that guy, probably by far the best doubles player I've ever had at UCLA. And, you know, he's doing great things in singles and he doesn't want to, you know, play doubles right now because he truly believes he can be, you know, top 10, 20 in the world. If you talk to him, that's, that's his goal. But, if he ever stops playing singles when he gets a little older and plays doubles, it, there's no doubt in my mind he'll be top 10 in the world in doubles. I mean, the guy has incredible hands, of course, a great serve, you know, returns so well off the backhand side. And, you know, you play him in that ad court, you know, if that forehand's late, it doesn't matter. He'll let some great ones, uh, you know, reverse the cross court for that. So, uh, really have enjoyed watching his progress and seeing his success. Mm -hmm. So with that said, you get Gimmelstab, Muscaturvic, I'm butchered that, McDonald Redlicky, Redlicky Zoo, or Smith Cressy. One match, number one doubles. Who do you pick? Probably Gimmelstab, Muscaturvic, quite honestly. They I were think that they good? Were, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Muscaturvic was another, you know, it was that that was I could have played either one at one that year. Um, Justin, you know, was, you know, playing a little bit better maybe at the time and was a little hungrier. Muscatarevich was a senior, but doubles wise, those guys were really, really good. I mean, the, the funny story with that one is um, Justin was seated one in the individuals uh, that year. And when we lost to Stanford the day before the, the individual started, he he was not going to play the singles or doubles. He was that you know, devastated from our loss. Like his dad and I literally, again, had to drag him out of the hotel, get him down there. He tanked his first round of singles, 
Um, and then the next day, you know, he had another day to kind of get ready to play doubles. He wasn't going to play, um, you know, surgeon and myself, we, you know, talked to him. I, you know, I tried to make him feel guilty. You can't do this to surgeon, this type of thing. But, you know, the, we, we got him out there. They were down match point in the first round of the double somehow eked it out and then went on to, to win it. But, um, you know, yes, those two guys, to me, on a day-to-day basis, probably the, the strongest of those four teams. Yeah, all fantastic teams. Again, like somewhere Marty Redlicky's like, how am I not your best doubles player ever? And he's like, <laughs> did I not win you enough? Um, but no, I mean, again, they're all, yeah. Well, he's certainly one of them. There's no doubt about that. No, for sure. And obviously talking about all these guys and, you know, for Keegan, for him to go through what he went through, and to have the pro success he's already had this fall, winning a title, just talk to me about Keegan Smith, who remains one of the most fascinating people I've ever covered. Well, what a character. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, was definitely, you know, the heart of our team for, uh, you know, definitely the last you know couple of years that he was with us. I mean, always kept us light and joking. And, you know, there wasn't a, a, a person that could be too tight around Keegan because he just had a way of always keeping us, uh, you know, smiling and laughing. But the thing is, when it came game time, man, he was ready to play. And, you know, he he was, you know, not going to go down without a fight. Um, so I love that about him. And, you know, when we were playing matches, I mean, he'd growl at guys that looked like they weren't, you know, tr- you know, trying or competing their hardest, uh, which I loved as a coach. And, you know, that, you know, one of your better players getting on one of the others that are hanging their head or something like that. But, uh, you know, really enjoyed having, I mean, I, there's a guy who just blossomed so much during college tennis. I mean, that he was a great talent. I thought, you know, when I was watching him junior, senior of high school and junior tournaments, but you know, there's a kid that was playing tennis three times a week, uh, surfing, you know, skateboarder dude, you know, that type of thing, uh, you know, just really was never really focused that much on tennis. But as he, you know, got towards the senior year, started having some success, uh, you know, and then came into college and had a great freshman year for us, uh, you know, I think he really started to believe that he could, you know, have a real future in the game. And, you know, he really has a huge game. I mean, a, a typical kind of pro game right now that's needed out there, a huge serve, big forehand, you know, moves unbelievably well for a six-five, six-six guy. Um, so, you know, I think he he really could do some damage. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And again, to rapid fire here down the home stretch, can you send me Marcos Garon's hip surgeon, please? Because just whatever <laughs> that guy was able to do, I think you and I should both get that operation. Well, yeah, no, that was a funny story. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, having him on the on the you know, coaching staff for those five months uh, while he was, you know, recuperating. It was really a lot of fun for me. And I think he enjoyed it. But I think one of the the things I remember always, and I've kidded him a couple of times about it was, you know, after he got playing again and was, you know, doing okay and healthy, you know, he admitted to me that, you know, it was really educating for him to, to do that. I mean, he was able to see himself in a lot of the guys on our teams and sort of their mentality and sort of their body language and and all the different things that he realized he was probably doing too and does do and that really helped him I think with his growth a little bit as a tennis player to be on the other side of the fence and you know I think that was uh, you know interesting for me to hear that from him 
No, no doubt about that. And then, again, and he said it publicly on this podcast, Carousel once came on this show, and I asked him about that 2014 team, and he said, look, as good as everyone was, there would be times in practice where Mackenzie McDonald would do things, and we all would just be like, dude, you're so good. And I'm just curious, you know, again, you've had a lot of good players come through UCLA, a lot of guys who have had pro success as well, but it just does feel like there was always, you know, I always say it it really is valuable in life to be the best in the world at something, even if it's a small subsect. And, like, Mackey was the best player in college tennis his junior year. And I just, I don't know. It doesn't surprise me of the group. It just felt like he always had the goods. I'm curious if you felt that way as well. Well, yes. And I knew Mackey since he was seven, eight years old playing against my younger son, you know, Little Mo tournament. So I really was able to watch his growth, uh, as he went along but yes i mean you know he has great foot speed uh you know he hits the ball so cleanly you know rather flat um but he really you know could do some things uh you know on the tennis court that a lot of the guys uh, cannot do um you know there was always room for improvement and he's done a great job with that especially on a serve i think has really come along in the last three four years since he left ucla but uh no, we knew he was destined for some great things, and it's just been really fun to see him uh, doing so well. We were scared to death when he had that, you know, hamstring tear. So, he, you know, there's another one like Marco's got through that, persevered, but uh, is moving along just great. He might be the fastest guy on tour. Like, I, I'm not saying he's definitively the fastest, but he's in the conversation. That first step is just, again— yeah, I'll take his hamstring. I'll take the old one and just throw that on me, the broken one, and I promise it's better than the one I have. Um, all right. I, I want to rapid fire through some format questions for you, but I have to ask because I can tell you exactly where I was. I can tell you exactly where you were as well. 2013 NCAA final, Champagne. Puget's got the volley on top of the net. Did you realize his foot kicked it? Or was it all, is it a big blur? Have you blocked it out? Well, no, I wake up nights thinking that, you know, with a you know, bad dream, did that really happen? You know, even these years afterwards, quite honestly. But no, I did not. I watched the volley. Uh, you know, he kind of angled it off. And I forget the young man who he was playing from Virginia, but I knew he was faster than anything. And he did get to the ball and tried to lob it over uh, Adrian. And we all watched the the lob go, you know, a foot or so out and just, you know, we're starting to, you know, you know, you know, celebrate quite honestly. And I was standing right across the net from the, from the umpire and Anthony Montero was the referee then. And both of them are giving me the, you know, chop across the net and then they're pointing to their toe. And I'm like, you know, throw my arms at them. I'm going, what? You know? And so I walked over, you know, and they said, gosh, Billy, I'm sorry, but his, his you know toe or the top of the shoe you know hit the bottom of the net there i said you know i guess i asked him i said god were you really watching that through this whole point and uh yes we you know both saw it or whatever and you know i had to make i think somewhat of a split second decision to either rant and rave and make a big fuss about it or just you know tell adrian hey god bad luck come on you're in the driver's seat no big deal you know you're serving uh, you know, which I, I still think probably was the right decision because I don't think I would have won the argument no matter what. And he did hit it. I think we've seen pictures of it from afar. But, you know, 
the rest is, you know, old news and that it didn't work out real well. And, you know, probably, you know, for me is, is, um, sad a, a moment in in my coaching career but in life in general okay it was not great but you know move forward no and again i apologize for making you relive it but i just again because the highs of the semifinal, we were playing ohio state 4-3 and you know garone wins what was that 7-5 in the third over cobalt and just like the most fantastic match and like i just Again, because you're about to hit year 40 or you're getting close to it in the coaching ranks. And just like, I know how how much harder it is to watch these matches than it is to play it. I, I am rem- I'm in constant admiration that you're managed to be able to keep coming back. Like, I feel like it's six heart attacks later per season. <laughs> well, it certainly has caused me to lose probably more hair than I've already lost. But uh, <laughs> no, it's a part of it that you, it's like a drug, I always say, you know. You know, I think even more so with coaching because you you really aren't in control as much as you are as a player. But you know, to strive for that perfect season of winning a championship is is an incredible goal to to, to strive for. And uh, you know, but you know, you learn a lot from the 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 losses and the sour you knowness of, of of a defeat. But uh, you know, I think it builds character. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, and I will tell you this: it builds podcast followers because I, I, without that match, I am not here today. So, again, <laughs> I'm a big fan. I don't know what that says about me. Again, but we'll save that podcast for a different time. All right. With that said, some rapid fire questions, and then I promise I'm going to let you go about the format. I'm curious: ad versus no ad? Has no ad grown on you? Well, yes, uh, mainly because I really feel that's where tennis even at the highest pro levels going um you know i just from everything i hear the tv networks and everything you know are pushing for it the you know the nadal's better Djokovic's or not you know uh, but i think when their careers are over i think we're going to see it we're doing it in all different types of other events the next gen the world team tennis uh, college tennis i mean it, it it is exciting in in some ways and and speeds uh, the match up around you know you don't not doing these 10 15 minute games do sad do sad yes the traditionalists don't like it but you know i think it helps our sport to get uh more people out you know not many people can go to a 5 hour match uh, in my opinion or stay on tv for 5 hours and watch the five set you know nadal federer clay court match that lasts forever um, but it's a whole different mentality, in my opinion, uh, you know, as far as when you play no ad, you, the first point is so crucial, uh, in my opinion, uh, the, you know, even the you know, 15 or 40, 15 point, you know, if you play a loose 40, 15, cause you think you got extra game points, uh, you know, all of a sudden the guy gets lucky on the, you know, three, two point that's three, all, everybody's a nervous wreck on three, all points. I mean, you, you, you can't, you know, play a three all point like you would a a deuce point. I mean, it's just it's not it's not possible really. So, you know, it does change the mentality and how players play a lot of different points throughout the game. Um, so yes, but I, I think that's exciting and I think it accomplishes some things uh viewer wise and spectator wise that I, I truly feel we need in the game. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, I also think it doesn't compromise the development. Like I do think 
the sudden death aspect help play it helps players later on in their career. Like yes, when you go to the pro circuit, you're playing no ad scoring, but I feel like the no ad helps. I do too. For concentration purposes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, you know the big complaint. A lot of players say, "Oh, it takes away from the conditioning." You know, part of tennis, and and that, that's rightly so. But you know, I, I still think you know it, it's still physical. Uh, doesn't mean you can't play three out of five sets if that's you know the way they they want to do it. Still for the majors, which is fine. But there's still going to be a lot of physicality. I agree. With that said, time to get funky. Uh, so something I have concern about, we talked about the pro product. I think the doubles points, the most fun thing in all of tennis. I don't care. Wimbledon final, Australian open final, whatever it may be, just the college tennis doubles point, 40 minutes, Russian roulette. That's as good as it gets. I do worry that there's just, again, the pause that comes a, the five minutes in between, but B that the first 40 minutes of singles don't really matter that the first sets don't really matter. I think it's time to getting back to playing doubles after the singles. And I think the way you ensure that that doubles is played is you make every double set worth one. Do you feel that lull at all? And is that something that appeals to you? Well, no, because I I think the worst scenario is which we always used to have was, you know, if it's 5-1 after singles and the doubles point doesn't matter, uh, that's so anticlimactic and it takes away where coaches are subbing in um you know and you're just you don't care i mean i, I think with right now i agree 100 percent with you gosh i'm a nervous wreck on that doubles point you know because it really is just so fast and furious or russian roulette whatever you want to call it i mean somebody gets hot your guys aren't ready to start right away it's just uh you see so many sort of not weird results but just sort of results that you know probably if it was two out of three or you know a little bit longer might not happen but you've got to be ready to play it so I you know and I'm not sure I understand exactly where the first set doesn't matter because you know you win the doubles point you you put up five first sets you know that's mentally defeating for a team to look up at the scoreboard it takes a hell of a team to you know fight through that and still come back so um, I almost think that that first set is so crucial after the doubles because it, it really sort of sets the tone for is a team really going to be fighting back after losing a disappointing, really close doubles or, you know, are they just going to roll over and die sort of? Yeah, no, that's fair. I guess I should have said from a fan perspective is that it's the slowest part of the match, right? Isn't that, you know, until it's 4-1 or 4-2, 5-3, you're watching the first sets closely, but it's definitely the adrenaline rush you get from doubles. You feel like there's a bit of a yeah. come down uh, at the start of singles. Well, I, I would agree with that. But, I mean, I just sure. I don't know how you conquer that. And, you know, we tried to make it so there's, you know, I guess you could call that a little bit of a halftime or whatever. But, you know, you just, you know, that the guys are right back out there. You know, there's really no stopping the thing. But, yeah, I mean, gosh darn it. I mean, it's a, it's – sort of a abrupt end for all of us players coaches everything when you you know you lose that third doubles in a tiebreaker and you had match points you know we're down match you know, all those different things i mean it's it's such a you know sort of roller coaster emotionally for us all mm-hmm. no no absolutely and with that said last two for you a timeout for every head coach. So I feel like we're the only sport without timeout. So you know those 15 20 minutes you and Rickus had in you know had in hand and it's just like, oh, the boys don't have it right now. So in lieu of that, 
You get to call a 90-second timeout. Now, if we're going to do this, bathroom breaks, gone. Long set breaks, we're getting rid of that. But you get to call one 90-second timeout, bring all your guys in, give them the speech, send them back out. Would you be in favor? Interesting. I've never heard that, that you know, thought, you know, ever. Um, yes, I mean, you know, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist where tennis is, you know, you do get your 90 seconds on the changeovers and it's individual. So, uh, you know, you can, but the thought of, you know, especially in a facility like ours, where we got the three courts in the, the back and the three courts in the front, they're not all, you know, to get everybody to run over. I mean, that's 45 seconds right there. You know, that, that would be difficult. Uh, you know, so I guess if I, if it came to it, now that you just asked me to spur them on, I'd probably decline that. <laughs> what I've learned is that you can get 49.9% of coaches to agree on anything. You'll never get 50%. Like yeah, you probably never... would agree on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the fun. All right. My last one for you. And I think I know where your head is at, but, and it's purely a fan thing. There's a lot of depth in college tennis, a lot of specialists. We bring in the one substitution rule rule where let's say it's, you know, you guys are up three, two court five. Five three, you've got that guy sitting on the bench. You're ready to bring in the closer. Let's get the sound effects going at the UCLA <laughs> Tennis Center. We're bringing in Max Cressy, freshman version, to close out this match. Yes or no? Well, I love it. It's kind of it sounds exciting. There's no doubt about it. But you know, that's just uh, a hard one to digest. I guess being the elder statesman uh, in the sport. Um, but yeah, I mean that. It, 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 I gotta believe it would be fan friendly. You know, you just save your six foot seven guy with a huge serve to come come in and hopefully serve it out. But you know, I think in reality that's hard to put somebody in unless they've been. You know, we we I don't know where my guy would be warming up. We only have six courts at our stadium, so he's you know he'd have to be up a you know a five minute walk from us at another facility <laughs> on, on the on the walkie talkie. You know, I'm not sure yet, but keep warming up that serve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can find public courts in L.A. You can make it happen. There's well, definitely yeah. something out there. Uh, uh, no, yeah. I, I like it. Uh, all right. Well, with all that said, um, you know, of course, Coach, we really appreciate you ha having you on the show today. Uh, I do want to say, give me the pitch. What should we be following? Why should I be a Bruin fan this fall? Or which well, I, I, you know, I, I just think if you like good young talent, we've got a lot of it. Uh, uh, this year at, at UCLA. And I think, you know, we always come ready to play. I, I, I hope teams respect UCLA and know that when UCLA takes the courts, they're, they're going to have to, to beat us. We're not going to give it to them. So I think this team will, will show that. Absolutely. I love it. Well, again, coach, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Happy holidays to you and your family and the team wishing you guys, obviously a ton of health and a ton of success as we approach this 2022 season. And of course, the spot always open for you on this show. Thank you, Alex. And thanks what you're doing for college tennis. It's, it's enjoyable. No, I appreciate you saying that, Coach. Take care. All the best.